Our second lesson is uh, from Paul's letter to the church in the city of Corinth. And it's printed for you there in your liturgy. I'm going to read it now. Now I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you be in agreement and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be united in the same mind and the same purpose. For it was reported to me by Chloe's people that there are quarrels among you, my brothers and sisters. What I mean is that each of you says, I belong to Paul, or I belong to Apollos, or I belong to Cephas, or I belong to Christ. Has Christ been divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized into the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one can say you were baptized in my name or I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember who I baptized. For Christ did not send me to baptize but to proclaim the gospel and not with eloquent wisdom so that the cross of Christ might not be emptied of its power. For the message about the cross, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. Oh God, our Father, our perfect parent, we ask you that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus not divided, But one Jesus, one baptism, one God, and one people of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's a shocking thing to think that a church could become a community that actually obfuscates the gospel. That gets in the way of people finding and experiencing Jesus. Shocking, yes. Unheard of, no. Here we have in this passage from Corinthians this morning a description of a church where the simple message of the gospel was being obscured by factionalism within the church. In that particular context... It was characterized, apparently, by how Paul describes it here, at a minimum, as a preoccupation with human leaders and what they were imagined to stand for. I thought somebody had played a trick on me and like stolen one of my notes, but I found it. So, <laughs> Paul presents to us in this beginning of this letter a really um, a very tragic image, uh, a picture of factions where each faction had named itself either after Paul or Paulus. They were co-workers. Cephas, that's Peter, by the way. 
And then finally, there was a group that they had named themselves after Christ. Not sure what the motives there were, but uh, we know plenty of people that, uh, that might say, I'm really the true Christian here, something like that. I don't know. Um, apparently, the community had begin, become so infested with the cult of personality that the centrality of Christ crucified was being drowned out in a cacophony of voices who praised their human leaders as being better than another human leader or what that human leader stood for. We don't know for sure what the messages of these groups, these factions were, but the content of what the factions were about, that really wasn't the problem per se. And it's not really what Paul is responding to. He's not responding to this group teaches this and this group teaches this and that's bad and that's bad. No, what Paul is responding to is the very existence of them in the first place. For Paul, what was so poisonous about the state of affairs was that it was rending the unity of the community asunder. What was so poisonous about it wasn't what they were actually saying. I mean, maybe they were saying some things that were good. What was a problem for Paul is that they existed as factions and divisions in the first place. It's the mode of being and relating to each other that the Corinthians had fallen into, patterns of living together, that was what was so worrying and troubling to Paul. It was a way of being with each other that made it seem like Christ was the special possession of one particular group of people. That's the implication of the phrase that is translated Has Christ been divided? In other words, has Christ been cut up into pieces and apportioned out to these groups, these factions? To underline how disturbing this is to him, Paul punctuates the point he's making with this question about whether Christ has been divided by asking another even more absurd question, He says, has Paul been crucified for you? I don't think so. What's clearly in Paul's mind is that the people at Corinth had gotten to the point where they were displacing the Jesus who gathers together a diverse, sinful, cantankerous group of people around himself for the purpose of making all of us the servants of one another in spite of our differences. That's the Jesus that is revealed in the gospel. That's the Jesus who's at work at this communion table, is the Jesus who gathers by his invitation a group of diverse people who otherwise would have very little in common for the sake of enabling us to bless each other and serve one another so that we might be a blessing to the world. But in Corinth, that Jesus was being displaced. That Jesus was being divided. That Jesus was being cut into pieces. 
and hid from the world. And in hiding that Jesus from the world, the church at Corinth was beginning to hide also from the world the only hope for healing the divisions that cause people to hate and distrust each other. It's not surprising that this would happen in a city like Corinth, where there was a perpetual temptation to seek to gain power over others. Corinth, at this time in its history, was a city that was obsessed with social status, economic status, success. There was an ever-growing and big temptation for anyone who lived in Corinth to want to climb the socioeconomic ladder, not caring about who they stepped on in the process, and climbing it by ingratiating oneself or their selves to the powerful and successful around them. It was happening all the time in the broader society that these Christians lived in, and you can only imagine that it was infecting these pattern of living together in this way was creeping into the church. What Paul is saying here is that these factions, by operating as they were, were treating the gospel and Jesus as a commodity to possess, manipulate, and control in order to hold power over others how diametrically opposed to the way that the gospel is revealed. For Paul, the problem here, as we mentioned earlier, is not what these groups are saying to each other, teaching. The problem is that the Corinthians had forgotten that the cross of Christ is the filter that they are supposed to be using to determine what unity looks like, what relationships in the church are supposed to look like, for how they are to understand themselves in relationship to God and to people, and to see what God's power actually looks like, and it looks like a cross, it looks cruciform, it's here for the sake of the other. For Paul, it all depends on one starting point, If one starts with the cross of Christ as revealing God's wisdom, then one learns to recognize everyone who follows this same crucified Messiah as a sister or brother. And then one looks for unity and common ground. One looks for it, and one works for it amongst people with a diverse, within a diverse community because one sees oneself as a chief of sinners and wholly dependent on the cross of Christ and wholly dependent on God's mercy for life. But if you start in another place where the Corinthians had begun to start, <clears throat> cult of personality, some kind of obsession with what certain teachers taught. Or for us, maybe it's demanding a uniformity on issues over which Christians can have very different, 
and very faithful views, by elevating those issues to the same level of the gospel itself, sometimes that puts us on the track to divide Christ and turn within a community what could be a default switch set for unity into a default switch that is set for people trying to gain power over each other. The cross of Christ is the filter for the wisdom of God. The cross of Christ has the power to transform. The folly of human wisdom, the folly of factionalism in the Corinthian church, or the way that we sometimes think that we have made Jesus a special commodity of our own to possess, that has no power to work good at all. We've um, often quoted from Luke Timothy Johnson, this New Testament scholar, and we've trotted this quote out more than once, but it's really good, and I'm going to trot it out again. Uh, I guess it's sort of like, you know, if, you know, if you have things on your playlist and you think, oh, I just listened to this the other day, but I really want to listen to it again. Um, I finally watched Bohemian Rhapsody. I'm way behind, I know. Uh, and then, you know, after I watched Bohemian Rhapsody, I stayed up late and I watched the Live Aid performance actually on YouTube. And the next day I listened to more Queen. And, you know, so anyway, we can be like that sometimes, but not to trivialize this by comparing it to a playlist. But Luke, Luke Timothy Johnson has this wonderful quote. It's so concise, it's so succinct a description of what Christian community is. He says, and I quote, it is the laboratory for communal life before God. The model that the world can see as the basis for its own rebirth. Laboratory for communal life before God. The model that the world can see as the basis for its own rebirth. Rebirth. In other words, the world craves a communal experience where people treat each other with grace and humility. A communal experience where a great deal of diversity can be held by the communion and unity that we have around Jesus. A communal experience where boundaries are broken down And people come to understand that what unites us is the experience of being forgiven and welcomed by God in Christ. And that that's more important than so many other things. More important than who you voted for. More important than how you apply the gospel to complex ethical issues even. We are here, and this is why I began the service this way this morning, we are here not because of our wisdom, not because of our goodness. We are here because of the invitation of the one God and the one Jesus that is making a group of people cantankerous and sinful and unable on our own to serve each other with the self-giving love of God. He's doing all of this by making us new. And anything that we do that obfuscates that, anything that we do that takes away 
from what our new tagline is at Grace Chicago, anything that we take away from Christ at the center is going to hurt us and hurt our ability to be that laboratory for communal life that the world longs to look at and see, hopefully, as a basis for its own rebirth. What a privilege it is to be, to to imagine, to dare to imagine that the life of a community and the patterns of relationships that develop within the community, that those patterns of relationship in and of themselves can draw people to the beauty of Jesus and the power of the gospel. I don't know about you, but I don't think about that enough. I don't pray about it enough. I don't dare to imagine how it could grow and become even more than it is now enough. But God wants us to do all those things. Because Jesus Christ is at the center in Chicago, us all around. And um, may we live into that vision of being called by Christ to be in union with each other for the sake of the world. Amen.